The composite player? What's that? We'll ask Todd Zola, a regular Talk with Todd guest, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, babe. I'm Lou Gehrig. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run? It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting, and I got to thinking. Thinking? With what? Baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, War Memorial Stadium. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 6th, and show number 6 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. Glad you have your aboard, and we have another great show for you. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with Todd Zola, our regular Talk with Todd guest every Friday, about the composite player and more. We also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with guest reporter Ray Murphy. We'll also have our HQ Radio commentaries. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Pirates shortstop prospect Young Ho Kang. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler has some ideas about how to handle those high-risk, high-reward players. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The composite player, what is that? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Always good to have you as well. Let's start with some potential sleeper candidates that were identified this week by Buyer's Guide columnist Stephen Nickrand. Uh, of course, a longtime starting pitcher columnist, now looking at batters as well. And uh, in his last column... Uh, Stephen looked for batters who showed the biggest gains in plate control and power skills between 2014 and in the first and second halves of last year. It's a really interesting approach because it shows signs of skills growth that might um, precede a nice breakout and some nice profit. And one of the names that jumped out at me was Colorado third baseman Nolan Arenado. Yeah, Nolan Arenado looks like he could have a, have a big year. If you look back at what Nolan Arenado did last year, it was a it was a nice year, but he Injuries kept him down to 432 at-bats, 18 home runs, all in all less than a $20 season. But if you look at the second half, as Stephen pointed out, gains across the board for Arenado. Everything was up in the second half. Hard-hit contact rate was up, expected batting average was up, power index was up. 
Uh, he had a, had a terrific second half. This is a guy who's at age 24. He's going to break out soon, and this could be the year. We said in the forecaster an upside of 300 batting average, 25 home runs. It sure could happen this season. Well, I liked uh, Nolan Arenado. Uh, the big gains that, that caught my eye in Stevens' column, and then I also went and looked for myself, but from 2013 to 2014, a 26-point jump in hard contact index, which combines not striking out with hitting the ball hard. That 127 index means he's 27% better than league average. That's quite good, especially in Colorado. And then he also boosted his fly ball percentage from 34% two years ago to 42% last year. So what you're seeing is a combination of fewer strikeouts, more hard hit balls, and more fly balls. And in uh, Colorado, in that stadium, that's a recipe for a lot of home runs. It is indeed. In fact, if you look at that hard hit contact index more closely, it was 136 in the second half of last season. And that's when he had most of the his, his majority of his at-bats. So uh, that's a positive thing as well. His home runs have gone up from 10 a couple of years ago to 18 last year. We're projecting only 20 uh, for, for this year coming up, which is a cautious uh, 20 or 21 home runs, a cautious sort of uh, estimate about what Nolan Arenado might come up with this year. But there's certainly some upside here. Nick, I wouldn't be surprised to see Nolan Arenado get all the way up into the high 20s and maybe even threaten 30 between the skills and the park. This is something that uh, really looks interesting. Very definitely. Uh, very definitely, I think. Uh, Nolan Arenado is a guy to, to to buy full in on. The only thing to watch is the, is the health index, and uh, uh, he, he did have some time out of the lineup last year. If he can stay healthy, uh, there's a big season coming up. Yeah, if he can stay healthy, that's something that you have to decide how much risk you're willing to take because uh, he, he is a little bit injury-prone like his uh, uh, teammate, uh, Troy Tulowitzki. It's the same kind of thing. We're projecting a 289 batting average, as you mentioned. There's some upside here that could suggest 300, but even 289 is pretty good in today's batting average climate. Our next sleeper, also from Stephen's list, is uh, Chicago Cubs outfielder Dexter Fowler. Yeah, Dexter Fowler's a guy that you, you've got to... You know, we, 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 we think Dexter Fowler every year is going to break out, and... and I, a lot of people, I think, must be getting tired of Dexter Fowler up by now. But you know, Dexter Fowler is only 29 years old. He's never become that superstar that we thought he could be. But here's a guy that's really got double-digit home run and, and uh, stolen base kind of potential. Going into Wrigley Field, he's going to be the, the starting center fielder, going to be at the top of the Cubs lineup. Uh, certainly, some uh, I think, some, some hidden value, perhaps, in Dexter Fowler this particular year. Baseball HQ's projecting Fowler to be in the mid-teens dollar value. For the last few years, he's been all around there, 14, 15, 16, sort of that kind of value, and that's what we're expecting again this year. But I guess the question is, is that the floor or is that the ceiling? Yeah, you know, and I, I think maybe we're looking at what that what the floor is for Dexter Fowler at this point. Dexter Fowler impresses me, impresses me as the kind of guy that he has very good skills and they haven't all come together yet. One year, he's going to have a huge, huge year. Um is it this year? Who knows? But the skills are there for a big year. Now, is he the kind of guy who's going to sustain that big year over several seasons? At his age, maybe not. But I think there's a much bigger year coming than we've seen at any time in the past from Dexter Fowler. Something that's been working against Fowler over his entire career is the inability to get a 500 or 550 at-bat season, starting in 2009 at 433 and then all the way up to last year, 434. Never once over 500 at-bats, and if you just prorate in any one of those years, especially his good years in uh, 2012-2013 when he uh, got double-digit home runs, you're looking at a very interesting sort of player at 550 at-bats instead of 440 at-bats. I mean, you can just add 25% to all his counting stats right off the bat. Having said that, though, Nick, when I look at uh, some of the underlying um, 
metrics here, his hard contact index, uh, only over 100 a couple of times, not at all in the last three years, so he's slightly under that. He strikes out a lot at 75% contact rate. His fly ball rate is kind of capped around 33-34%. So there's a lot of things here that suggest maybe Dexter Fowler is not going to be as productive a home run hitter, shall we say, as we might like for a guy that we're thinking about uh, maybe investing riskily in the hope of a breakout. Yeah, I wouldn't invest a whole lot of money in Dexter Fowler, but here's a guy who's reached a point where where you might consider him boring at a, at a draft table. And if you can pick him up for under $10, which which seems certainly possible, then he's going to produce some profit definitely at that level and, and maybe quite a bit of profit if he does have that breakout season. That's the thing. Nine home runs, 15 stolen bases, 271 batting average is the current Baseball HQ projection. Uh, Steven Nickrand, as I said, also covers pitchers, and he does have a sleepers list for pitchers this week as well. And uh, his National League list includes, uh, and this is a name of, of some interest, Willie Peralta of the Brewers. Yeah, Willie Peralta had a, had a really good season a year ago. 17 wins, 3.53 ERA. Uh, in the kind of pitching environment we were in last year, that uh, that only netted out to a $9 5 by 5 value. But Willie Peralta's got some good skills. His his dom has been real steady around seven. His control has been getting better over the last few seasons. Um, here's a guy whose velocity is very good, throwing about 95, 90, 94, 95 miles an hour, uh, 54% ground ball rate a year ago. Uh, at, at age 26, could be on the verge, I think, of a really big season. One cautionary note uh, in in Willie Peralta's stat line is that last year in the first half, he got his walk rate all the way down to 2.2 walks per nine innings, which is excellent considering his strikeout rate, as you mentioned, his 6.8 dominance is, is made made for a command ratio of three strikeouts for every walk. But then in the second half, he wa- he struck out a few more guys, but he walked a lot more guys. His, his walk rate went up over 3.3, and that meant that his strikeout-to-walk command ratio fell all the way back to 2.2. And in, in this pitching environment, Nick, it used to be the two 2.2 command was uh, above every threshold that we set. Not so much anymore. No, not so much anymore. We, we certainly want to see at least 2.5, and it's nice to three, see 3.0 or, or better in the current environment. So you're right. That did drop back a little bit in the second half. So it's something to keep an eye on. But still, I think Willie Peralta is an excellent target. Especially for the strikeouts. So we are projecting uh, Peralta not as enthusiastically as Steven Nickrand is kind of expecting when he calls him a sleeper not expecting exactly but suggesting that there might be some profit there uh, the actual projection is calling for a six dollar season which is you know it's okay for a five by five league but the 134 whip projection is what's causing that value to stay a little bit suppressed uh, and finally uh, bullpens columnist Doug Dennis boy Doug D- Dennis does great work for baseballhq.com and he's continuing his excellent series of reviews of the bullpen situations around the major leagues and he stopped in at Colorado, and he says some very positive things about a relatively unknown guy, Jairo Diaz. You know, the thing I really like about Doug's column this week and, and uh, is that he, he, he hit some really deep sleepers. I mean, guys who could have terrific seasons in, in several uh, sort of unsettled bullpens, but guys that, that you've never have heard about. And in fact, if you, go to the, um, if you go to the baseball forecaster and look up Jairo Diaz, not there. Um, and the reason is Jairo Diaz a year ago – only had uh, appeared in five games in Colorado, uh, six innings pitched, not a whole lot at the major league level. But you go back to minor league baseball forecaster, you find some uh, some much more intriguing numbers on Jairo Diaz, and you see here's a guy, here's a guy with a dom rate in his in his in his six innings in the majors, twelve point seven strikeouts per nine innings, huge dom rate, and that's about what he was doing in the minors. That same kind of level 
of dominance. Control at that level, of course, gets to be an issue. I mean, but but 4.8 in the majors is not bad at all. As long as he can keep the walks down a bit with that kind of strikeout rate, this guy is going to be terrific. Throws about 97 miles an hour. Um, and, and the other big thing in Colorado is a ground ball rate. 46% ground ball rate in the um, in Colorado last season in that short stint. And a, a good ground ball rate coming out of the minor leagues. So that, of course, you need in the Coors Field atmosphere. And Diaz has it. So certainly a guy to look at. I mean, in the Colorado bullpen, we're going to start off with, with Hawkins as the closer, probably. Uh, Odovino is the, is the number two guy. But Jairo Diaz, as, as Doug Dennis says, could rise in the hierarchy very quickly during the course of this season. Something that's interesting that you said, Nick, about uh, Jairo Diaz bringing his uh, 12-plus dom rate from the minors and maintaining it at the major league level, and it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it, that a pitcher can come from the minor leagues, even the high minors, and come up to the major leagues without any decline in his strikeout rate. And Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, a frequent guest here at Baseball HQ Radio, wrote a column a little while ago about the change in strike zone and umpiring as you move from the minor leagues to the major leagues. And the major league umpires are more willing to call strikes, especially willing to call outside strikes, including balls that are frankly outside the strike zone, as well as, you know, call called third strikes and all of those kind of things that contribute to raising the overall strikeout rate in the major leagues. And so when you see a player coming from the minor leagues who has very high strikeout numbers, our automatic inclination is to say, I'm going to discount that a bit when he comes to the majors. And maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should be saying, especially for these very high strikeout guys, they're just going to keep right on rolling at the major league level because the gain in batter talent is going to be offset by the change in the way the strike zone is called. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly uh, certainly possible. I mean, that... Uh that that's a very good point and it makes good sense and then you see a guy throwing 97 miles an hour uh and you figure you, you can't wait to swing do you see where the ball is going you got to swing at it or it's going to be by you we're projecting Jairo Diaz to be unrosterable at the start of the year as you said a very deep sleeper uh, but closer Latroy Hawkins in Colorado has already said he plans to retire at the end of this year and since his numbers are never that great anyway uh, Colorado's going to be having a new closer sooner or later uh, I think Adam Ottavino is probably the guy at the top of the list right now, but certainly Jairo Diaz looks like a great grab and stash for keeper in Dynasty Leagues. Yeah, very definitely. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League beat here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Now let's turn to the American League. And with Jock Thompson sunning himself in a secret remote location in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, we're going to have a pinch hitter. And striding to the plate, one of the big boppers, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show, and thanks for pinch hitting. Well, you know, Jock takes a vacation at this time of year, so, you know, the whole staff's got to pull together and cover his butt so well and he's down there sunbathing so cover his butt might be uh, doubly uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> doubly valid comment under the circumstances uh ron chandler's been busy uh, the founder of baseballhq.com still writes regularly for the site and he has uh, one of his most anticipated columns is the draft radar alert that he does actually two columns one hitters one pitchers he started this week looking at some batters who will either be too low on the radar or possibly too high he's got some guys in there he wants no part of i was really intrigued though um Ray by a Mariners hitter who Ron thinks, and I agree, that Dustin Ackley could be a neat surprise producer this year. 
Yeah, Ackley's come up in a couple of places on the site this week. As you mentioned, he made the list in Ron's draft radar alert. And then uh, last weekend, uh, while I was on the first pitch tour, Brent Hershey wrote my speculator column looking at uh, some AL hitters who are opposed to break out like Michael Brantley did last year. And Ackley made his list as well. So, you know, a couple of times in the last week that Ackley's sort of caught our eye. And I think for good reason. The biggest thing is, of course, uh, the improvement he showed in the second half last year. He had a really big August and, you know, continued to show some power in September, even though the batting average was off. But in the second half last year, he had 274 with 10 home runs. You take that and, you know, we can't just sit here and prorate it over the course of a full season and ink that in. But if you want to throw those kind of numbers out there as an upside of what he can do if those late season games are real, then, you know, you're talking about a 275 hitter with 20 home runs. This is a guy who has a, you know, top draft pick pedigree. I think he was the number two pick in the draft a few years ago. And he's just now hitting age 27. So there is a bit of a leap of faith involved here, but there are a number of indicators between age, pedigree, and recent performance that suggest that you know, Dustin Ackley might be more than what we think he, he, more than what we thought he was going to be at, say, the All-Star break last year. A lot of the signs are pointing in the right direction. It, you mentioned that uh, he has the good metrics going just in the second half of last year were particularly noteworthy, but even in the last couple of years overall, uh, expected batting average three years ago in 2012 was just 234, and uh, he actually underhit that. But the last couple of years, he's brought that up to 250 and then 265. And last year, he was again well under his expected batting average. So if he just catches up with his own expected batting average progress, you're looking at a potential for what 270, 275. Seems well within range. He's got double-digit home runs in his background, including last year. He's got double-digit stolen bases one year, a couple of years back. There, there seems to be a lot to like here, and except for the problems with left-handed pitching, there's, a, there's not much to dislike. Yeah, and it's not like there's a, you know, if I had a criticism of him, it's not that there's a, a really plus skill here. You know, we're not seeing 30 home run power or 30 stolen bases here, but you just kind of summarized it nicely with the fact that he makes a decent amount of contact, has the potential to get on base at a decent clip if the hit rate corrects. And then you throw in that little bit of power, a little bit of speed. You know, he's really, a, you know, for an undervalued guy, he's the kind of guy who's going to contribute a little bit in a lot of areas and really just be sort of a fill-the-box score kind of guy. Tough park, of course, for hitting home runs in. His home run per fly ball rate has consistently been under 10%, but as he gets a little older, he'll f he's going to fill out and mature a little more. I wouldn't be surprised to see double-digit home runs here at all, and I, I also wouldn't be surprised to see him get up and threaten that 20 home run mark, as you mentioned. We should say Baseball HQ currently projects Dustin Ackley for 12 home runs, around 50 RBIs, and 6 to 7 uh, stolen bases, and a 250 batting average, so... Right now, the projection is 7 or $8. I'll tell you what, Ray, I'd bid 7 or $8 easily in the expectation I could get fifteen, sixteen. Yeah, I think you can pay 7 or 8 and be pretty confident that even without any further gains or regression of BABIP and that sort of thing, that he's going to return that 7 or 8 And if you can get that price point, then like you said, you might you might well double your money if a couple of the things we just talked about fall into place. We're only projecting 471 at-bats partially because of the platoon issue, but if he manages to sort that around and gets 550, you know, you're just looking at some additional home runs, RBIs, and stolen bases just on that bat volume. Uh, Ron also talked about Yankees catcher Brian McCann, who I can tell you, having drafted him last year, had a disappointing first year in pinstripes. 
Yeah, I had him last year too. So I think you and I both suffered through a lot of those same bumps, especially early. You know, he got off to a slow start, hit for some decent power, but his first half batting average was 221. And, you know, I don't know what your particular experience with him was, but he picked it up in the second half, bumped the batting average back to 250 and hit 15 second half home runs. That was all well and good, but my team was already cooked in the second half largely because of that first half struggle. So, you know, I carry a battle scar or two there, but... This wouldn't be, you know, Ron's point in the draft radar alert today was this wouldn't be the first time we've seen a guy sign a big contract, especially going to New York and take a couple of months or a half season to really adjust before he gets locked in, gets the routine down, understands what comes with playing there, gets his head around the contract and gets back to, you know, staying within himself and those kind of cliches. But if the second half of last year, points to the idea that McCann finally started to figure that stuff out. You know, a year ago at this time, we were all really high on McCann and excited about what he could do power-wise in that Yankee Stadium with that short right field porch. And that first half bump last year aside, he started to figure that out later in the year. So maybe we were just a year early on being all bullish on Brian McCann. You know, while we talk about McCann having been a disappointment, he wasn't a flat disaster. I mean, he was a 10 or $11 players, and in this, if you prorate the second half to the full year, he would have been higher than that. And 23 home runs, 75 RBIs, I mean, it's not, you know, Miguel Cabrera, but for a catcher, not too shabby. And the, the, the big weakness was batting average. But if you look back in his career with very similar skills numbers, he has batted uh, 300, he has batted 270, 280. So the the possibility here for a rebound is, to say the least, intriguing. Yeah, I'm a little more bearish on the batting average recovery just because he seems to be one of those guys who's the slow left-handed hitter who was done in by the shift. And, you know, the advent of the shift in the last couple of years is sort of specifically targeted for guys like him and David Ortiz who hit a lot of hard ground balls to the, the pull side of the field and, you know, aren't going to beat them out because they're so slow so they can put the shortstop in short right field and have time to throw them out and that sort of thing. So, you know, certainly I don't expect him to get back to 300, but there's some room for some gain here. And if you can get him in this day and age, even nudge him back over, you know, 250 or toward 260 for the full season and give you that 25 to 30 home runs that isn't really any different than what he did last year. Like you said, if you prorate the second half, you get... 28. So I, I think even with my concerns about the shift and its impact on batting average, you can still get to, you know, 255 and 25 to 30 home runs and 80 plus RBIs there. Yeah, especially when you look at their uh, batting order, it's not exactly replete with power hitters or run producers, so he stands a pretty good chance of getting into one of those really good uh, run-producing slots, which would add a little bit to his value, maybe increase his RBI totals at least for sure. Uh, One of the features I really like about BaseballHQ.com that I don't think we talk enough about is the fact that Every article has a comments field under it, and and it's been a, a kind of a slow thing. I think you'll agree, but lately I've been seeing a lot more of the subscribers reading the piece and then commenting on it. And of course, then the author of the piece gets to comment back, and you get a dialogue going rather than a you know you sit down and listen while I talk, and that's the end of it kind of approach. And some of the subscribers who commented on Ron's column really uh, got interested and liked his pick of Luis Valbuena, a Houston third baseman. Yeah, he was, you know, we were talking about our experiences with McCann last year, and Valbuena was sort of opposite for me. I had, I think it was in a speculator column early last year where I 
picked up on, as I recall, it was his hard contact numbers. Your you know, the metric you developed a few years back, and noticed that he was really making a lot of contact and hitting hitting the ball hard. And I added him to one of my teams, and he was just a great contributor down the stretch. You know, he had that second base, third base eligibility that was really handy. You could plug him into the lineup, and there's you know he was a surprisingly productive player. And now you take him from Chicago to Houston, where there's less competition for him because you know he was kind of jumping around in between all of those prospects in Chicago, and that was only going to get harder this year as more guys arrive. But in Houston at third base, he's really only blocked by Matt Dominguez, and that's a better ballpark for run production, for power, et cetera. So lots of reasons to think that Valbuena can you know, be sneaky valuable, and that was kind of the point in the comments today in both Ron's write-up of Valbuena and in the the reader comments was that the guy is completely underappreciated and you can steal him in the end game. And it's the kind of guy you pay a buck or two or three for who, you know, is very, very likely to give you eight to 10 bucks. I like Valbuena as well, but I think we have to caution people at 249 batting average last year, which is not tremendously helpful. It's okay, but it looks a lot like a ceiling given what he's done in the, you know, immediate previous past 219, 218 in, in 2013 and 2012 is not a harbinger of great success. His contact rate is consistently around or just below 80%. He doesn't draw uh, a ton of walks in his early career. Then he starts picking that up, but we know that that doesn't affect batting average as much as people used to think. But then there are the good signs. Hard contact index has risen risen steadily, 71 in 2011, up to 120 last year. He's 20% above average in that metric, which is a, a good, solid offensive production metric. It's, a, it's going to be a balancing act, but again, this looks like Luis Valbuena could be the kind of guy you're going to get for well under his actual value and way under his potential actual value. Exactly. You know, he's, he's completely under the radar. There's some profit potential here. And, you know, don't undersell the importance of the position flexibility either. That second base, third base flexibility is an awfully handy thing to have to you know, bounce around from your third base to your corner infield to your second base to your middle infield positions during the season as you're, you know, you're working around other injuries and that sort of thing. We're projecting him at BaseballHQ.com as a $5 player in 5x5, five five, 450 at-bats, uh, 17 homers and 50 RBIs, and that 235 batting average, which is going to be the big sticking point. There, there could be room for improvement in a lot of those numbers. So keep Luis Valbuena, if not you know, at the front of the stove, at least on a back burner somewhere uh, for later in the draft. Uh, Michael Waddell of BaseballHQ.com, he posts really a lot on the uh, subscriber forums as Michael at HQ. He had his annual Santana Plan Anchors column. This is really interesting reading. And, Ray, before we get to some of the names on Michael's list, maybe you could start with a brief uh, but big-picture explanation of what is the Santana Plan. Sure. The Santana Plan was sort of a adaptation of uh, the, the more famous Lima Plan several years ago, where, as there was, you know, the Lima Plan, of course, suggests, you know, targeting high-skilled but lower-valued pitchers to fill out your staff. And Santana was sort of a mutation of that that suggested that you could allocate a budget to purchase one pitcher from sort of the top end of the starting pitching pool to be your rotation anchor. And then in a draft setting, you would wait from after getting that one starter early a very long time to sort of fill out your your rest of your rotation, you know, much closer to the end game. In an auction, it would, he might... The, the anchor might be you know, your only double-digit purchase or on the on the uh, rotation side, something like that. But the idea was to get the one 
200 plus inning, great ratio, high strikeout horse, and then do everything the Lima plan advocates in chasing skills, not roles, and, you know, pushing the rest of your budget heavily toward the offense. So Michael's been doing this exercise for a number of years where he goes through and looks at factors like, you know, skills, both skill levels and consistency of skills, multi-year track record, health, etc., and tries to identify the safest investments for that strategy if you want to go forward with it. And it's interesting, Michael points out that if you're not being real careful about it, the plan sounds like just spend 25 bucks on a pitcher and then and then go from there. And he points out that that's not the strategy. The strategy is to find those stud players. They happen to cost $25, $26, that's true, but the more important thing is it's not just a $25 pitcher. It's a particular kind of $28 pitcher that you mentioned who has a track record of skills, a track record of results, and he identifies those. And there's not that many year to year, six, seven pitchers that make his list. And one of them this year is already on the DL is uh, Chris Sale of the White Sox. Yeah, Sale's interesting. Michael's article went up uh, you know, right about the same time the sale, the sale injury news broke. But the Nature of the injury, it's obviously very early in spring training. We're still, you know, four weeks from opening day. And it sounds like, you know, he's only going to miss a week or two of the season if all goes according to current plans. It's obviously a story you've got to monitor for the rest of March. But I'm actually a little more interested in sale because if it's true that the injury is going to have only a minor impact on his season and cost him, you know, in the neighborhood of two starts, maybe you know, 15 to 20 innings over the, as he sort of ramps up a little more slowly in the rest of April, if he even comes back on that timeline, then if that impact causes, say, a one round or four to five dollar drop in his value, his that might be enough to sort of make him a target or a bargain opportunity. If I have a draft this week, I think it's probably still a little too risky for me because there's still too much risk of a further setback in the month of March or that the original timeline turns into he's back on April 15th to he's back on May 15th. So right now I'm in a wait and see mode, but a month you know, a month from now, if I'm drafting toward the end of March or you know opening day weekend, or that sort of thing. If sale is still on this same timeline and hasn't had any setbacks and there's a there's even a minor discount to be realized from the injury situation, I may very well jump all over that. I think the discount will be bigger because a lot of people right now think, as you're thinking, I don't want to take the chance that he's going to miss a solid month or six weeks or something like that. But everything I read, especially from him talking, it doesn't sound like it's that serious. He, he was moving some goods and he, uh, he stepped out of his truck and basically strained his ankle. He rolled his ankle over and cracked a cracked his foot in avulsion fracture it's called i think maybe the time to really get a hold of chris sale might be now you might be right it's a it's a personal risk tolerance sort of question you know the good news there's a lot of good news in the injury information you just gave first of all it's not his arm second of all it's non-surgical so you know if he can you know if he gives this thing just a couple of weeks to heal and it heals on its own and then the delay in april is more about him building up arm strength and trying right. to work through his normal spring routine on a you know sort of later or slightly abbreviated timeline then you know that's fine so you're 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 right if you're willing to take a sh- take a chance that all of these medical in- information that's given right now you're willing to take it at face value then you're right there's probably even more va- more value to be extracted now than later in the month when the you know the clarity sort of uh, becomes more public knowledge well, he said publicly on his Twitter feed, I'm not going to have it cut off. It's still here. He doesn't seem worried about it at all. Now, mind you, that 
probably falls into the category of noise more rather than news because he's not a doctor after all, and, and we don't know how things are going to work out. And I do have a tiny bit of concern with the possibility of cascade problems. This is his landing foot, his plant foot, I should say, that he broke, which means there's a lot of stress on that foot, and we know that if a pitcher comes back too soon, even from a seemingly innocuous, relatively small injury, but it just causes that little bit of pain that causes him to rotate his torso a little differently, bring his arm out of its slot a little differently. He had elbow problems last year, and I do have a niggling little sense of worry that if that foot's not absolutely pain-free, that he may start on April 15th and he may be out of the lineup by June 15th because now he's hurt his uh, elbow or something. Yeah, that's the uh, that's that risk-reward balance I was talking about. If you're able to, uh, you know, sort of, not jump off the cliff, but, you know, take a, take a step off and, you know, trust that, you know, what we know about the injury and all of those positive factors we were covering earlier, reasons why it's not a big deal. If you're willing to buy into that, then there might be some profit to be realized. But, you know, to take the cautious approach that you were just espousing, sort of part two of the question becomes, do you want to bet your season on that? Because, you know, at the prices, prices or draft rounds that sale goes at, that's essentially what you're doing. Baseball HQ projection right now is for the low 30s in rotisserie 4x4 and 5x5 formats. I think that 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 may get adjusted downwards a bit depending on what we hear about how it's going to affect his innings. But on the other hand, the uh, win projection is only for 13 wins and the White Sox are a better team this year across the piece. So maybe maybe we need to bump up his wins total a bit. Yeah, that's a good point. There's uh the, the projection in terms of innings might be a little optimistic, but in terms of overall value, I think it might be something he can exceed based on, you know, b- based on picking up a couple of extra wins. And finally, Ray, another anchor for the Santana plan that Michael Waddell raised in his article is a guy who has come up on the show here a couple of times, actually, earlier this season, and that's Seattle right-hander Hisashi Iwakuma. Yes, uh, we should note uh, for American League players that, of course, Felix Hernandez is on that list too, but that's probably less surprising. So best yeah. to pivot. And we'll talk about Iwakuma for a couple of minutes. And sure, I've heard you talking to Harold Nichols about him a couple of times. And, you know, Harold's a big fan of his and Harold likes the veteran guys in general. And I may not have that much to add to it. But, you know, it is interesting, I think, that this list that Michael came up with, as you said, it's not all $25 or $30 pitchers. It's those within that class who sort of meet a specific set of super criteria. And there were only three AL and three NL pitchers who meet it. And on the AL side, the three are Sale and Felix, who you would expect, and Iwakuma, who you might not necessarily throw into that class. So to me, this is, for you know, I don't need to rehash all of the prior praises of Iwakuma that you guys have covered, but I think this is further confirmation that Iwakuma is sort of an a le- an underpriced, less heralded pitcher who has the skills and potential to reside in that very, very top tier of the AL starters, and he probably won't cost you as much as the more recognizable names that we traditionally put in that neighborhood. Yeah, he fell down to about 15 bucks last year after a $30 season in 2013. And uh, we just ran a column at BaseballHQ.com that cautions against expecting bounce backs from high-value pitchers. But having said that, as long as you have some explanations for why he uh, fell down as much as he did and he had some nagging injuries and so forth, uh, limited his innings to a certain extent, he was kind of unlucky on the on the on uh, some of the metrics as well. Uh, Iwakuma is the kind of guy who might only draw a bid in the $13, $14, $15 range this year or down around, what, the eighth round or ninth round when that sort of second tier, third tier of pitchers starts to roll out in a, in a straight draft. Uh, it looks like... 
you know, of the two pitchers, Hernandez is going to be the one that everybody's going to bid on, obviously, and Iwakuma might be the forgotten guy who actually offers better value potential. Yeah, Iwakuma could go for, like you said, something like half of Felix's price, but it might return three-quarters of the value or something like that. And, the, and reducing the risk at the same time, because, uh, you know, if either of them happens to get hurt, I know Hernandez has been a horse throughout his career, but pitchers always get hurt. You know, it's something that we just learn to accept. And if you've invested 30, 35 bucks in a pitcher and he gets hurt, he's irreplaceable. You're not going to find a 30, 35 dollar pitcher in the free agent pool. So you have to trade or make some kind of sacrifice or just give up and start taking the hit to your counting stats and to your ratio stats. And, uh, a guy like Iwakuma, I know it's also not easy to replace a $15 pitcher, but it's easier than a $30 pitcher. That's right. And, you know, you were also talking with uh, Todd last week, I believe, and about, you know, things you watch for in spring training and what matters and what doesn't from the spring developments. And Iwakuma, because of that mild dip last year and the way he ended the season that had uh, generated a little bit of concern, I'm not going to watch his spring stats. I don't care how hard he's getting hit anything like that but I will be watching to see if he is on sort of a normal ramp up schedule for his innings and that if he's on the normal progression of throwing you know two innings three innings five innings and you know come late March two weeks before opening day if he is as stretched out as someone normally would be if they're you know if they're bringing him along gently or if they've you know decided to hold him back or for some reason he isn't you know his arm isn't responding as well and he needs to you know, dial it back a little bit and elongate his prep time, then I might start to get a little concerned that the dip last year is still causing a hangover effect or something like that. But if he is, you know, sort of in the sweet spot as far as, you know, in, in the mainstream of his pace for getting stretched out and being on track to start the second day of the season after Felix, then I am going to be, you know, th- that will further confirm the optimism we have here. Personally, I'd like to see him get uh, roped around a little bit in, the, in spring training so people get even less uh, inclined to bid on him because I have him on on my uh, draft radar, to use uh, Ron's term. Are you at all concerned, Ray, about the velocity situation? Above 90 a couple of years ago, 2012, then just below 90 in 2013, then down below 89 last year, this these are all relatively small variations, but the trend is certainly in the wrong direction. I am not terribly concerned. One of the reasons for it is, you know, we've got the velocity data on our site uh, for the first time now. We're actually still getting a glitch or two out of it. And one of them, one of the glitches we have is that uh, the data from the overseas games, the March games in Australia and Japan, et cetera, the last couple of years is uh, skewing some of the velocities downward and because the data wasn't captured properly. And I think we're still flushing that out of our data. So I'm not, if you're looking at our data, I'm not 100% sure that uh, Iwakuma isn't caught in that somewhere, that uh, there, there might be a, a bit of a glitch we're still sorting out. But as also has been pointed out, uh, you know, velocity tends to, you know, tend to trend downward gradually with age anyway. Iwakuma is, I think, 33 now. And, right. you know, the control and command are still intact and the guy knows how to pitch and, you know, he's kind of past the point in his career where he's going to be straight rare and back and blowing people away anyway. So not terribly concerned. And I, you have to like the, uh, the trend in walks 3.1 that year where he had the highest velocity. He's got a lower velocity now, but, uh, the walk rate is now down to 1.1 walks per nine innings, which not only helps as a, as a portrait of skills, but it has a direct impact on whip. You're not walking a lot of guys. That means you're going to have a really competitive whip. And the last couple of years, it's been barely over one. 
Yeah, that's right. And the other the other thing is kind of like you were saying about Sale. You know, Seattle's shaping up to be a pretty good team this year, and you know, it's a good it's a favorable pitcher's park and a f- uh, you know, a couple of other favorable pitchers' parks in that division in Oakland and Anaheim, and the winds may be able. To, you know, that's competitive division, but the winds may may also flow there nicely as well. Projection is for a three twenty one ERA, one oh nine WHIP, uh, mid twenty dollars in value, and sixteen wins is what we're looking at at baseballhq.com. So that would be the uh, icing on the cape for Hisashi Iwakuma. Ray, thanks very much for pinch hitting. I appreciate it. Hey, next time Chuck goes on vacation, give me a call. All right, and in the meantime, you'll be on the show when we go bi-weekly starting next Tuesday. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, it's our regular weekly talk with Todd. Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, inviting you to go back to the future with us. 2015 is the 30th anniversary of the original Back to the Future movie. And this year is also the future destination that Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd travel to in that movie. Back to the Future is the theme of our 2015 First Pitch Forums program. No, we won't have a DeLorean at the events, but we will do some time traveling into the future ourselves as we preview the 2015 baseball season. Join us for these entertaining three-plus-hour seminars and jumpstart your draft prep. In the coming weeks, we will be coming to Chicago, Cincinnati, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, the New York, New Jersey area, Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Admission is just $39 in advance, 54 in Cincinnati, and you can get the dates and details at BaseballHQ.com. Just look for the First Pitch Forums box on the right side of the homepage. We'll see you there. First Pitch Forums continue this weekend, Friday night, March 6th, in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, on the 7th. New York, New Jersey, and on Sunday, March 8th in Boston. Then next weekend, Saturday, March 14th in Los Angeles, Sunday, March 15th in San Francisco. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The objects of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Nobody smart, funny, and wise as George Carlin. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com and you'll see these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column is his annual draft radar alert for batters. Our guest writer, Glenn Lowy, discusses his plan for the Baseball HQ entry in the 2015 NFBC and the regular columns that will provide HQ subscribers with an inside look at how Glenn manages the squad. And Ray Murphy has his straight draft guide of the 2015 season, something that straight draft players all over the place eagerly anticipate. Plus, of course, all our regular features, facts and flukes, playing time today and tomorrow, everything you need to get prepared for draft, it's coming up soon, and it's all on the site now at BaseballHQ.com. 
Now it's time for our regular talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, The Mothership is Masters Ball, and Todd is on the side of the road somewhere in Virginia. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back, Patrick. And it's always good to have you. Uh, you're on the side of the road somewhere en route to uh, the First Pitch Forum's location for the Baltimore-Washington, D.C. area. I understand you're in Virginia. Well, I will I will be in Virginia. Right now I'm uh, in between Bridgeport and Westport, just off of uh, Route 95, borrowing McDonald's Wi-Fi, and I'll go buy an orange just in a minute so I can uh, you know pay for it. You've had the first set of sessions of First Pitch Forums. How's it going? Oh, they're going really well. The... Uh, the guys Ray and Brent they put together a great program with Ron and it's uh they've got a there's always an interactive aspect of it and I think they hit the nail in the head this year with uh what they're doing as far as uh, I won't spoil the beans for those of people that are going to be attending this weekend and the next weekend on the uh, west coast but they've got a real cool interactive program this year that's going really well and so that's uh, Friday night. You're looking at the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. It's actually at the USA Today Complex in Virginia. Then uh, tomorrow night you go up to New York City, the New Jersey, uh, New York City area, and then finally back home to Boston. That's it. Yeah, this is the, one of my favorite weekends of the year. I, uh, I'm bypassing an opportunity to, to be at the labor, the labor drafts this weekend. This, this takes priority for me. Uh, one, one reason being it's the hometown Boston but uh, I love the energy on the East Coast. Not that there's anything wrong with the other cities, but there's something special to me. I'm, I'm an East Coast guy. Well, you mentioned you're not going to be participating in the labor auction, and that uh, raises a question for me that sometimes comes up at the Baseball HQ forums, and I've got another one in a minute that did come from the Baseball HQ forums this year. But that question is, as far as the uh, average a uh, player out there who's listening to Baseball HQ Radio, and he sees that these expert leagues are starting to spool up in earnest. You've got uh, labor starting this weekend. You've got the Tout Mixed Draft next weekend. Then you have the Tout Wars auctions on the 21st weekend. Uh, when when a, a, a home league player, a guy who wants to just play in his league, or even an NFBC player looks at these uh, experts' auctions, what should he take away from that, and what should he not? Well, if you're in the NFBC, ignore anything I do. That's a good uh, start. No, all right. So uh, basically, uh, the the least important is the actual dollar value that a specific player goes for, because it's it's very contextual. It's very league dependent. Uh, I look more of groups of players. I'm more curious, not so much how much Clayton Kershaw goes for, but how much the top pitchers go for in each of the. The two auctions, the rain is, you know, take, it's going to take 32 to $38 to get, you know, Scherzer, Strasburg, one of those guys. I'm not so, you know, it's not so much it's going to take $34 to get Felix Hernandez. So I can get a, a feel, and every, even though every league is different, you can still look at it group wise, globally, as far as that goes, just how the, the general populace is feeling about players like that. And there's some other, pl- I'm, I'm interested in particular players that, are lesser down, lower down on the uh, totem pole, and a lot of that depends on when they come out. But you can still get a feel for: am I am I too aggressive? Am I not up enough, uh, high enough on a player? And again, with one auction, it's hard to tell. But it, it's another data point. It's one more data point than they had before. Um, and you, you sort of look to see. If you want to do it in your own auction, if you want to be able to identify strategies so that you can adjust your own bidding, sometimes it's fun while you're following along these auctions to see if you can identify 
what these guys are doing. Because if you can't identify it while you're not bidding, there's no way you're going to be able to identify it while you're actually playing. So keep an eye on, oh, this guy's going to go no closers. This guy's going to, you know, doing a scarcity draft, things like that. Practice trying to identify in advance some of the strategies. So when you're actually in an auction, you know how to best take advantage of that. And just to be clear, I, I want to understand when you say identify what your opponents are doing at the table, it's that, do you think that means that you need to interfere with their strategy or do you just, or do you mean you just need to be aware that they're doing it? And, and for instance, if you've got three guys going no closers, then you could realize, Hey, I might be able to get a bargain at the closer position because there's going to be a few more uh, available than ordinary would be. Or are you saying you need to step in and actually interfere in, in the sense of price, uh, price enforcement or those kinds of active tactics to try to interfere? I think interfering is far down on the totem pole. I'm more concerned about my team. If in the course of the auction, I can get inside someone's head or mess something up or make them pay an extra dollar or two, that's great. But not not in lieu of my own plan, of my own strategy. It's more like you were saying. If you know, I I've talked a lot about the middle middle relievers. So if if the middle relievers come out early and they're going for five, six, seven dollars. Well, I better I better either find different middle relievers, which is what I'll do. Uh, you know, I can't plan on getting the guys that I want. So you need to identify. You know, if uh, if speed's going for a certain amount, if if one one team is loading up on starting pitchers, you know, there's going to be a fight for other starting pitchers later. So you may want to jump in a little bit early. So I, it's less interfering and more not being jeopardized your own strategy because of what somebody else is doing. In general, where do you stand on the whole idea of price enforcement? See, I, I, to me, I actually heard some, uh, the Rotowire guys were talking about this yesterday in the radio and I sort of agree in that the price enforcing, if you're, if you're bidding a player up to a point you take him anyway, that's not price enforcing. That's bidding the player up to your bid. You know, a real price enforces if you don't want the guy and you say that number and you're just hoping that someone goes higher. You're not price enforcing if it's low. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I hear all the time, well, I price enforce, but if I get the guy, that's fine. You're not price enforcing then. You're bidding him up to your number. So I, I'll do that. I think everybody will do that. It's, I guess it depends. If I really, really like my team and I feel confident, I might try to price enforce because I don't, it may not hurt me so much. But, to, to make one guy in an auction when there's you know $3,600, whatever it might be on the table, to overpay by 2 or $3, it's really not going to you know change things all that much. So I, I prefer not to get burned and, and, and get stuck with a player. But, you know, if price enforcing is, you know, if I really don't want the guy, but I'm okay if I get him, to me, that's not price enforcing. Yeah, to me... I agree with what you're saying. And to me, the question arises, if you think a guy at the table is, is building a pretty good team, the, the real dilemma that pops up is he nominates a guy and it looks like he's going to get him cheap and you really don't want him on your roster. He doesn't fit your strategy. He doesn't fit your tactics, given what your team looks like at that moment. But at the same time, you're thinking to yourself, I, I really can't afford to let this guy who's building a pretty good team add to a pretty good team with a pretty good bargain. Right. If it's a trading league, I'm more, you know, I'm much more likely to go that dollar because you can trade the excess. And, you know, if you do, if it is a, a good price, you should be able to balance it out. If it's, I do the NFPC auctions and I'm less likely to do that because 
There's less of an opportunity to square things away. And yeah, I mean, the guy might have a, a good team, but one injury on that team and the team's not good anymore and you just, you know, did it for not. So trading league, I'm more, much more likely to do it like Tout Wars in a couple of weeks uh, because, like I said, you could, uh, if you do have an asset over that you need, you can always, you know, funnel it off and get something else. And then the next week, Todd, you have the Tout Wars Mixed 15-team draft. That's an online draft, but you have a role in that. I'm the babysitter. I just make sure that the chat room's working fine, and it'll be broadcast on SiriusXM by our friends uh, Colton and the Wolfman. So there's going to be a four-hour broadcast. So I'll be their liaison in case something goes wrong in the chat room so they know who can call and find out why no picks are being made. But I sit there, and, you know, you just make sure that everything's running smoothly. If, if somebody hits the, you know, hits the wrong guy and you know, I'll back it up and that sort of thing. But it, it, it runs itself. It's a good group. They've been doing it for uh, several years. Tout Wars uses OBP. So if you're following along on the radio, keep in mind that it is an OBP league and it's a draft, 15-team draft. So, you know, the NFBC is a big thing. It's 15 teams. So there might be some differences with OBP versus batting average. So keep that in mind. But it doesn't matter what the uh, offense is. It's still going to be curious to see where pitching goes because that's the – that's the thing nowadays. You, do you take two pitching or two pitches early? Do you wait? It's it's a lot. There's a lot more to the strategy what you decide on because there's less ways to make up for errors at this point. So whatever you decide to do, you can't be willy nilly. You have to have thought about it and planned around whether you're going to wait on pitching, whether you're going to take it early, and structure your team accordingly. I think something you said a few minutes ago about how to look at these drafts, whether they're straight drafts, I think, or auction drafts, is you have to be aware as the draft proceeds that the valuations that owners are putting on their teams, these expert owners, are going to start really varying widely depending on what they've managed at the table to that point. You know, that that a a player might, uh, an owner might, add value to the last available catcher because he's worried about not getting a, a having to roster two poorish catchers uh, and he doesn't want to do that so he might go the extra buck or go an, an extra round early on an Evan Gaddis or somebody like that to use a name that I know is near and dear to your heart so in the early going I think you're looking for chalk you're looking to see if if anybody's jumping up and down from a fairly well established sort of list that you know, we all know that uh, you know the, the the top players are going to go in the top round or two, and and there's going to be some moving around within it. It's in those rounds like six, seven, eight, and in the ten, eleven, twelve dollar range that uh, you really have to be careful not to not to overstate or over accept what the uh, bidding turned out to be or where a guy went in the draft because of those tactical considerations. Does that make sense? Right. Usually, early you build your foundation early. And based on your foundation, then you'll, you then fill in the parts. If you're, if you're lacking in speed, then you might jump, uh, a speed guy up in the, in the six, seven, and eight more than someone who maybe was a little bit more balanced at the top. And, and, and maybe you jump on that speed guy and, and in a different draft, there wasn't, a, there wasn't anybody that needed speed. So, a a player, I don't know, Colton Wong is a guy that could go anywhere from the sixth round to the 10th round in this sort of thing, depending upon how much, you want that speed, uh, so that's it's definitely true. You know, again, one one player, you can't judge on one player what what that player's worth. You have to look at things in sort of more of a a group sense. Even closers, you sort of, you know, if if the first closer goes earlier, then the other closers will go along with it. 
it just if they go in round three, you can't say, oh, I got to get a closer in round three. In a different draft, they might go in round five. But what you can say is, all right, well, as soon as Eraldis Chapman goes, if I want Greg Holland, I, I better I better be ready to get him because he's going really quick afterwards. Yeah, that makes sense. That 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 whole idea makes sense. That you just have to, after a certain point, start responding to what's going on and being aware of the fact that. Uh, these guys, as I said, are operating based on a uh, on their past, their foundational building, and into the uh, superstructure, as it were. Um, we've talked in the past about having a little extra respect for baseball organizations that have proved themselves over the years to be really smart and capable. Tampa, and uh, up till this year, the last couple of years, Atlanta, we would have said that about probably Oakland, a few others, and. Uh, I wonder, without mentioning any names, Todd, do you look when you look at the expert league results? Do you Look a little more closely at certain experts versus certain others? Yep, especially if they have a, not so much an affiliation, but if they're just more familiar with a particular team, and you have to to be able to deflect out whether they they may have bias for that team. But for sure, there's certain, uh, yeah, and, and it may even be, I know a particular owner's strategy, and this player would either fit or not fit into his strategy. So it might not even be a particular player. It might be how I feel about their strategy. But yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I will check out what certain, I think in your home league, you must, you need to do that too. If you, you know, there's the prospect guy, there's the, you know, there's the guy that, 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 that overbids on the home players, the home team players. You need to know your league wherever it is. And we've been playing with these guys long enough that we know the tells. We know what to look for. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And uh, Todd, uh, one in the Baseball HQ forums, we get a lot of interesting conversations going on. And just the other day, I noticed that somebody had come on and asked you about the concept of the composite player, which is a, an idea you came up with a little while ago now. And maybe for the benefit of that uh, guy and all of our HQ listeners, can you run through the, the high-level concept of what you mean when you talk about the composite player? Yeah, sure, because this actually relates to something we talked about, uh, I think, when I did my labor draft, how I I care more about my own expectation than I do the uh, the, the, the room, the ADP, as it were. The, uh, the, the particular piece, the reference was in the baseball forecaster, uh, and that was a, a, a shortened-down piece, that a research piece I did for you, actually, probably about a year ago at this point. And what it is is I have an expectation – for every draft spot and that expectation is based on you know history how the league ended up where the statistics ended up and you can actually come out with an average expectation of the 23rd spot of the 24th spot of the 25th spot by just averaging the final year in statistics you know if it's a 23rd spot you don't want to just do the 23rd because what if it was a stolen base guy so we average the 20th to the 26th something like that and you have to make adjustments if there's a pitcher in there, but, you know, there's, you know, math intricacies. But I come up with a, an expectation for each spot. And obviously it, it's descending. I, what I like to say is that you, you pick up a spiral. I'm sorry. You pick up a slinky and you hold it at the top and the top, the rings are further apart. And as the slinky goes down to the bottom, they're almost on top of each other. Well, that's the same, that's the same way expectations go in a fantasy draft. As you go down the slinky, they, the delta between the two players is, is, is gets less and less and less. So I'll have an expectation, and it's it's empirical, but I'll have a conversion of how many homers and steal, how many homers equals how many steals, and how many runs equals how many RBIs. 
because so, not all players are five category contributors. So what I'll look to do is if I'm up at a certain point, I know the expectation. I know my players that are available. I'll look at their stats and I'll see which of those stat lines will fill those expectations after they do the minor adjustments of a, for, you know, the different amount of home runs and steals. And it's just another way to think about the expectation this way. I'm looking at it. It's fluid. You know, is there any upside to this projection? What am I actually getting? Because if you just bid by a rank or a dollar value, sometimes you forget what it is you're getting from that player. And even though he's ranked higher on your cheat sheet, he may not be helping your team because you might already have that category and you maybe, maybe don't need it. So by looking at the actual projection in terms of the statistics, it just makes sure I keep the balance. And, you know, I'm getting a player I think will fit for that spot. I'm not really interested where the rest of the room feels it might fit. If he works for me, he works for me. Does this have any ramifications for how we value players? Uh, I know that the the usual method, and we've talked about this in the recent past here at Baseball HQ Radio, Todd, is that we kind of set a baseline down at the bottom for the $1 player and we scale everybody up from, from there. Would it make any difference? And if so, how would we apply if we said we want to know what the average player, the composite player in, in any slot is, and we, we know approximately what we want to pay or what that mid, median value is based on how we, how we split up our hitting pitching budget, could we say for valuation purposes, instead of starting with the baseline replacement level plus one player, we want to start with the median player and work up and down from him? I think so, because, I mean, it, to me, it's, it's all relative. Whatever you, as long as you have a foundation, everything is relative, relative to that. And the values, they aren't absolute. I was just thinking about this last night. The, the more I know about valuation, the more I understand how to value a player, the more I realize how, you know, meaningless the number is. Not meaningless, but it, it just, it, it doesn't have as much value. You know, you, you spend all this time really understanding how to value a player. And at the end of the day, what you're really learning is how to use that value, not so much being so good at, putting the number on the player, but knowing how to use that number is, is so much more important than that. But to me, it's all relative. If, if using the middle middle player, maybe that maybe that gives a better a better rank because a replacement level player, you know, it's almost de- by definition, you got, you know, almost you know, two homers, two, two steals. It's, it's so low. Maybe using the middle player might help with the with the relative ranking. I haven't actually really looked at it to see what the differences might be, but there's some justification for looking at it. This raises another question for me insofar as auction dynamics are concerned. Uh, Last year, somewhat uh, notoriously or famously, depending on how you look at it, I guess, in the Tout Wars mixed auction, which I took part in, Derek Van Riper took a very aggressive approach to the top players and landed Miguel Cabrera, Mike Trout, and Jose Bautista. And basically his approach seemed to be, I'll bid whatever it takes. And he ended up spending um, $125 or $130 on just those three guys. That's half his roster, and he still hasn't any pitchers. He still doesn't have anybody else on his offensive roster. And he won the league. And uh, punted closers, I should say. Now I'm wondering, right? if you're at the table, Mike Trout came out within you know the first four or five guys, 
and he gets bid up to 65 or 70 or $69, whatever it turned out to be. Do you then have to make an adjustment to how you're thinking about how you've valued players, or do you just say it's an outlier, he's spent himself uh, into oblivion as far as I'm concerned, I'm sticking with my valuations? Well, I'm, I'm on alert, that's for sure, especially if I was interested in a McCutcheon or a Goldschmidt or a, or a Carlos Gomez. I'm on the alert because, you know, DVR, he may not have been the only one that was willing to go that high, and he's now set the bar. And if somebody else then does a knee-jerk reaction and goes into the 50s or 60s, well, at this point, I may have to start thinking about lowering to the to the Rizzo's and the Anthony Rendon's and, and not start my team with a $40 player. Uh, you know, if five or six guys in, you know, and if it's only DVR, well, I don't worry about it because it's going to, you know, once he does, once he's done with his thing, it's, it's I don't want to say back to normal, but the prices are more what you expected. So you definitely have to keep an eye out and make sure and, and see what else is happening. Now, what you, I, what I'll do is I'll note who is bidding. You know, if, if, if Derek wanted to pay 65, that implies that someone else is willing to pay 64. Right. So you find out who that was. And this goes along with what we were saying before, as far as knowing the room, if it's someone who, you know, to be a stars and scrubs type player, well, you know what? That person is probably going to take bid what it takes to get Stanton or the next sort of player. So I'm sort of curious where that player, whether the ne- the next owner, where he lands as far as his high bid. Uh, you know that I'd probably more important than that. You know that would be the most important thing to me is the guys that were in the bidding with DVR. Where do they land on the next set of, set of players? And the worry to me, it seems like, is the 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 possibility of a stampede where you know somebody lands the top two guys in the draft last year uh, as far as expectations went were Miguel Cabrera and Trout and they both end up on one guy's team and he's willing to spend whatever it takes and and you got to be always aware I think as you as you're getting to with the possibility of a herd mentality where everybody looks around and says if I don't bid 55 bucks on on Stanton I'm going to be sitting around with 55 bucks halfway through the draft and there's going to be nobody left to spend it on and there's going to be four or five of us and we're all going to be bidding on these second tier talents because we've all got money and all the good players are gone. Right. You that's what that it's I don't know if it's not so much catch 22. But you adamantly refuse to overpay for the guys at the top, and what ends up happening is you overpay for the guys in the middle. Right. So you know you said to yourself, "Well, geez, if I'd known that, I would have just paid for Trout." You know. So that in that that's sort of you know one of the things maybe to counter that is, as all these you know the bidding wars are going on for the top guys, when it's your turn to nominate, put a a twenty five dollar player out there, someone who's still pretty good. Maybe these guys are all waiting for the top players. And maybe you can get a very good player at a very good price. So instead of Trout, maybe you get two $25 players and you're building your team pretty much the same way you were going to anyway. Because, you know, once all this settles down, it, you know, you know, towards the middle, the players go for what they go for. And at the end, depending on how you like, you get an $8 player for $2 just because you like that guy more than the next guy. On the other hand, you know, then at the end of the at the end of the auction, you can say, "Look, I got a whole bunch of eight dollar players for two bucks a piece," and and somebody says, uh, looking at your team, "Yeah, but you got a team full of eight dollar players." Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you can get, if you can find a way at the top to get a couple of twenty five, twenty eight dollar players at price, you'll probably end up spending the majority of your money. You know, in mixed leagues, if I leave five or six dollars on the table because I thought. You know, if I thought 
I thought I, I was willing to pay $7 for Seth Smith and he only went for a buck or two and I leave five, five bucks on the table, I don't sweat it. If I leave $5 on the table and NL only tout wars in a couple weeks, well, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be cussing about <laughs> that for the next two weeks because in, in an only league, you really, you really can't right. do that. Uh, in a mixed league, just because of the, the different valuations at the end, it's not such a big deal to leave money on the table. And I, I should say, it seems to me that if you're if you have a choice between even getting Miguel Cabrera for fifty or getting two twenty five dollar players for twenty five dollars each, uh, you'd be way better off getting the two twenty five dollar players. You're gonna you have to get more counting stats, especially runs and RBIs. Seems like a given, and. At the same time, you also somewhat reduce your risk that if either of them gets hurt, it's not taking all $50 with them. Right. Now, you know, someone's going to get that, you know, last year, Michael Brantley probably went for single digits in, in this league. So, you know, you're, someone's going to anecdotally say, well, would you rather have Brantley and and Cabrera or, you you know, and so you can make those arguments and cherry pick players out like that. But in general, yeah, I mean, you're going to get nice players at the end, but you're going to get them anyway. So I think, you know, I just said, you know, leave the $5 on the table and mixed. What, I, what I've learned is isn't so much to spend it at the top, but don't be afraid in the middle rounds not to go a buck, a buck or two above on a couple of players that way because at the end you're still going to get a good player right. for a dollar. You're still going to get a 5 6 $7 player on your cheat sheet for a buck or two and not leave any money in the table. So there's always a point you can go back and reverse engineer the draft and say, you know, I wish I had spent this $5 more on my, I could have gotten a much better second catcher if I have spent, if I spent this $5. So even though it's okay to leave the money in the table in a mixed, it's also okay to leave yourself with five players for $5 because they're going to be five pretty good players. True enough. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for doing this. Enjoy the first pitch forums this weekend and we'll catch up with you again uh, in a week's time. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN. The mothership is Masters Ball, as we've said. And I'll repeat what I always say. Wherever Todd is, you should be there too, because you're going to find out a lot of cool and interesting and very helpful stuff. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular Friday commentaries. Ron Chandler is on deck with Master Notes and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Pirates shortstop prospect Young Ho Kang is BaseballHQ.com Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. It'll be interesting to see what the Pittsburgh Pirates do with shortstop prospect Young Ho Kang this spring. The Pirates paid the Korean baseball organization, KBO, approximately $5 million for the rights to negotiate with Kang and then signed the 27-year-old shortstop to a four-year, $11 million contract. Pirates manager Clint Hurdle caused a bit of a stir when he indicated that he sees Kang as an everyday player, while Pirates GM Neil Huntington said Kang might be used more sporadically. 
Certainly 2014 opening day starter Jordy Mercer will have something to say about the matter. Mercer did get off to a slow start last year, but hit 282 with six home runs in the second half and proved himself a solid contributor. Still, Mercer doesn't have the same offensive potential as Kang. While the Korean Baseball League makes the California League look like a pitcher's paradise, Kang put up some eye-opening numbers last year, hitting 356 with a 459 on on-base percentage and a staggering 739 slugging percentage, hitting a career-high 40 home runs and 418 at-bats. Obviously, Kang isn't going to hit 40 home runs in the majors, and he can be overly aggressive at the plate. But he does have good power and should be able to belt out 15-20 to 20 long balls given steady playing time. It would certainly be wise to take a cautious approach with Kang, but he might be worth squirreling away in deep NL-only formats, and he could return a nice profit. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and the crew have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Right now on the site, BaseballHQ.com has the 2015 list of top shortstop prospects, part of an ongoing series of position-by-position prospect reviews. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues and at your drafts, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at how to handle those high-risk, high-reward players, here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. In a recent article I wrote for USA Today, I discussed eight players who were once first-round $30 commodities. Thanks to age and injury, these former stars have dropped on most draft ranking lists. Some are still hanging on in the second round. Others have fallen so far that they're barely in the top 100. The eight players are Troy Tulowitzki, Hanley Ramirez, Ryan Braun, Matt Kemp, Carlos Gonzalez, Albert Pujols, Joey Votto, and Dustin Pedroia. It's interesting to see the evolution of the decline. As recently as last year, four of these eight were still ranked in the first round. Five were there in 2013, and six of the eight in both 2012 and 2011. It tails off if we go back any further. Kemp and Pedroia are the only ones who weren't consistent members of the top 15. But the question now is, what do we do with these guys? We can't dismiss them because, well, once you display a skill, you own it but we also can't draft them at the full value of what they're capable of of producing. Nobody is paying $30 for any of these guys in 2015. Most fantasy leaguers are just hedging. That's how you get Tulo ranked at number 16, Hanley at 24, Braun at 26, Kemp at 41, Cargo at 47, Pujols at 52, Votto at 74, and Pedroia at 98. And it's no surprise that you can find a direct correlation between these ADPs and just how long it's been since these players posted productive numbers. Yes, injuries have played a part, but players can get better. Age should be hardly a concern at all. Every one of these guys is either 30 or 31, except for Pujols at 35 and Cargo at 29. Guys like Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion are not getting any ADP discount just because they are in their mid-30s. Forget about how old these guys are. So you have to think, if these guys are healthy, 
they could potentially still earn first-round value. But you don't have to pay for it. Selecting them at around their average draft position or at an Oroto dollar discount means you get to own whatever profit they might provide. At the same time, you incur the risk that they might go completely belly up, which is the fear that feeds the discount in the first place. Well, the truth is, that rarely happens. All of these guys have always provided some value so long as you acquired them at the right price. But surprisingly, you still might be able to use some of them as building blocks. If you assume that you're not going to get more than 350 or 400 at-bats out of any of these guys, and the marketplace agrees, then your purchase price will reflect that, as it currently is. That also means you get the opportunity to backfill the missing at-bats with another player. The question then becomes, how lucrative is that pool of replacement players? What caliber of free agent will be available when one of these guys goes down in July? The answer to these questions will shape your decision for where to invest. Typically, guys like Tulowitzki, Ramirez, and Pedroia would be too risky because there are rarely any decent middle infielders available during the season. For Pujols and Vado, not too many corner infield options either. But outfielders, Braun, Kemp, and Gonzalez could be more desirable, I'd think, at least if past tendencies hold. So if you need to take a chance on a potentially big profit player while still protecting your backside, this is one way to approach it, especially in leagues that are first place or no place. You have to take a few educated risks. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler of BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank Todd Zola, our regular Talk with Todd guest, and our other commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts this show were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'll have a rotisserie gaming piece on the site soon looking at the Bernhard plan and whether it can work in modern fantasy baseball. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. And remember, you can find Baseball HQ at iTunes by looking for the term Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday as the Baseball HQ Radio podcast goes bi-weekly, starting with a feature-length interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. We'll see you there. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.